I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading 2 Corinthians chapters 1-4. through 4. Let's first get an introduction to the book of 2 Corinthians. We have a new letter here, but with the same problems, many of the same problems as were dealt with in 1 Corinthians. A few months have passed since Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. It's believed by many that 1 Corinthians was written by Paul in the spring of 55, and that 2 Corinthians was then written in the fall of 56. We'll see as we read this second letter to the Corinthians that many of the same problems appear to still exist. He doesn't mention their abuse of communion or lawsuits in this letter. Maybe they corrected those. Paul does a lot of reflecting on his own life and ministry in this epistle. By the way, Paul credits Timothy as a co-sender of this letter, perhaps in an effort to build Timothy up in their eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. He also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. So here's the question. Why do good people have trouble? Well, according to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, adversity from Satan builds our faith and gives us patience. That's the nature of trial. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, those verses tell us that wisdom from God through trial is what God wants us to have. The trial is more palatable when we understand the why of the trial. Paul gives another angle here in this passage to trial, its helpfulness to others. Notice what he says in these verses. When we have adverse experiences, they become sources of helpful encouragement to people later on who go through the same trials. We see that concept in verses 3 and 4. He then briefly mentions the severe trials that he's recently encountered. Notice verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, 
so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Paul says that the more adversity he endures, the more consolation he's able to offer other people. But remember, 1 Corinthians 10.13, here's what it says. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. No trial we encounter will be greater than what we are able to bear. In these opening verses, Paul uses the Greek noun thlipsis. It means tribulation or trouble. Its verb counterpart is thlibo, it means afflicted, and both those words are used to describe Paul's adversity here. In other of Paul's writings, he uses these words interchangeably with some other key words. They're used to describe adversity for believers. These words and their exact meanings are to be found detailed in an article that I've written entitled Trial, Testing, and Temptation. A subtitle there is Why Does God Allow Satan to Test Believers? You can find that by clicking on the link right here on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today or under the topic section of BibleTrack.org there in the middle box, the pink box, you'll find this article, Trial, Testing, and Temptation. Well, sometimes, however, adversity in a believer's life is the product of God's chastening hand, and that's because of a believer's disobedience. That scriptural concept may be studied in detail by studying an article that I've written entitled, Trial versus Chastisement. Subtitle there is, Why Do Good People Have Trouble? And you'll find that under the Uh, on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, link right there in the reading where I'm reading right now, or under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, Trial versus Chastisement. It's not known with any certainty the exact nature of Paul's adversity to which he alludes here in verses 8 through 11. Whatever the difficulties, they must have occurred during Paul's third missionary journey. And if you want more details on that third missionary journey, look at the notes on Acts chapter 19. Now to verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly and sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. As also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. In these three verses, Paul discusses his motivation for doing what he does. He wants to be remembered for his ministry to others and to these Corinthians, nothing else. He lived a life of sacrifice for the sake of those to whom he ministered. It was a life without pretense, we see in verse 12. He's ministered in simplicity and godly sincerity. However, it's obvious from these two letters to the Corinthians that his sacrifice was not always appreciated. He's in good company, though. There are a host of Old Testament prophets who gave their lives to warning Israel to repent, but to no avail. They, too, went unappreciated, even suffering adversity at the hands of the very people they were trying to deliver. To what avail did Paul minister? Well, there's his answer in verse 14, that they would be his rejoicing in the day of the Lord Jesus. What does he mean by that? Well, perhaps 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 will give us a little bit of an insight when Paul says to those believers, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. 
Now, both passages refer to the reward that would be waiting Paul when Jesus Christ raptures believers to heaven. Paul had devoted several verses to this process of future reward in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. There you find the account of the judgment seat of Christ. Well, there's nothing wishy-washy about Paul's ministry. Look at verse 15, where we begin reading. And in this confidence, I was minded to come unto you before, that you might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way through Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness, or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. These verses in which Paul talks about his visitation plans well, they make a point of integrity about Paul. He's not wishy-washy about his instructions to these Corinthians. Paul points out the consistency of being always on the mark. The term used there is yea in the King James Version. And never inconsistent with his instructions. And that's when he uses the phrase yea and nay, meaning inconsistency. These comments seem necessary in light of Paul's change of travel plans. He apparently canceled a plan to visit Corinth, causing his adversaries there to be critical of his resolve. Incidentally, we see in verse 19 a reference to the preaching of Silas and Timothy also. He's called Silvanus in the King James Version there, but it's Silas. These accompanied Paul beginning with the second missionary journey, which began in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Then we see the work of salvation beginning with verse 21. Verse 21 now. Now he which establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul, that to spare you I came not as yet into Corinth, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. Well, the work of salvation is seen here in verses 21 and 22 when it says, now he which establisheth us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us as God, who hath also sealed us, and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, I developed four aspects of our salvation as seen in these two verses. They're a little technical, so um, if you're interested in those, then uh, look at those on the written notes. Let me just sum up these two verses, verses 21 and 22, to say that this verse, verse 21, shows us that salvation is only of God. Verse 22 shows us that the Holy Spirit seals our salvation and serves as the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. In other words, the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in every believer is God's earnest payment on each of us. That's the literal assurance that we are children of God redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and on our way to heaven. A concept which, by the way, he mentions again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, where he writes, Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Paul wants us to know we're sealed. 
Notice the two other references that Paul makes to the Ephesians regarding the sealing of the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, "...in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise." And then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we read these words, "...and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption." Now, Paul's really, really clear on this doctrinal issue of the Holy Spirit. God gives each believer the Holy Spirit as a seal to validate and eternally protect the salvation of that believer. This ministry of the Holy Spirit begins at salvation according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12:13 which says, "For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body." Paul then tells the Romans that each believer is in possession of the Holy Spirit when he says in Romans 8:9, "Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's not of his." So here's the bottom line. No one gets saved without the empowerment and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that, by the way, is the same Holy Spirit which safeguards our salvation afterwards. And that brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 1, But I determined this with myself, that I will not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow for them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Now some scholars think the letter to which Paul refers here is 1 Corinthians. Others, however, feel that Paul wrote another letter after 1 Corinthians that was quite specific in its treatment of some of the issues and individuals there. No one knows for certain to which letter he's actually referring here. Based upon verses 5 through 11, which we'll be reading in just a few moments, I lean toward this referring to a letter written after 1 Corinthians and not to be the letter of 1 Corinthians itself. In uh, chapter 2, beginning with verse 5, we have the issue of a guy that needs forgiveness. Verse 5, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was afflicted of many. So that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him, and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." These verses would seem to indicate that a letter after 1 Corinthians had been written. If this is a reference to 1 Corinthians, then the man being spoken of here surely must be the one they were to boot out from the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and that was for the appearance of incest there. However, verse 10 seems to indicate that whatever the transgression of the man being spoken of was, it seems to be something personally directed at Paul. 
That leads many scholars to conclude that it was not the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul now calls for his forgiveness by all, an action which seems appropriate if the man in question had been guilty of something like, well, like questioning or resisting Paul's authority, but certainly not a lifestyle of perceived continuing incest, as was the case with the guy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or at least the appearance. And then we come to verse 12 of chapter 2. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ." Well, these remarks begin with Paul's disappointment that he was not able to link up with Titus and Troas. With no means of long-distance communication, one can only rely on finding people in the churches who'd seen Titus pass through. Paul then discusses the power of Christ in us to overcome adversity when he says in verse 14, Now thanks be unto God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Despite his concern for Titus, he expresses his triumph in Christ and the privilege of sharing the savor as in the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. We are always triumphant in Jesus Christ. Now, carrying the savor example a little bit further, verses 15 and 16 are a little curious. Here's what they say. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? Paul, he preached the word with sincerity. He's probably speaking to the reality that the words of the gospel result in the saving of some, that's the good fragrance, and the condemnation of others, and that, of course, is the bad fragrance. While not explicitly stated, many see that as Paul's analogy of a Roman victory procession. We're told that after battle, the Roman soldiers marched through the streets of Rome upon their return, and in this parade they displayed their spoil through the streets, forcing the captives to march with them. This march was accompanied with the celebratory burning of incense smelled by everyone around. Perhaps Paul was drawing from this mental image familiar to Roman citizens in his day. What an awesome responsibility when you're talking about the eternal destination of someone's soul. The Greek word used for corrupt there, kapaluo, in verse 17, literally means to peddle. In other words, Paul points out that some preach God's word for profit rather than with sincerity and the proper motivation. That brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye 
are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. In these five verses, Paul addresses any questions regarding his authority. He makes the point in verses 2 and 3 that the work of the Holy Spirit in the changed lives of these Corinthians was sufficient recommendation of Paul's ministry. This work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Corinthians validates Paul's ministry and his authority. Now we come to some interesting verses on the Old Covenant. Pay close attention to these, beginning with verse 6 of chapter 3. "...who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life." But if the ministration of death, written engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ." But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now let's establish some vocabulary that's needed to bring this passage into some clear perspective here. The words testament and covenant are the exact same word diatheke in Greek, mean the exact same thing, and sometimes the King James translators translated the word testament and sometimes covenant. The words translated testament 13 times in the New Testament and covenant 20 times. It's used a total of 33 times altogether. So literally, Old Testament means Old Covenant, and New Testament means New Covenant. The Old Covenant was based upon the law of Moses. The New Covenant is based upon grace through the finished sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Now, Jeremiah prophesied concerning the New Covenant back in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Listen to this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, 
and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Paul quotes these verses in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. He identifies them there as the new covenant. It's by this new covenant that we're saved and that we're made righteous before God today, Gentiles and Jews. It'll be by this new covenant that all of Israel will be saved in the future. Paul starts in these opening verses of chapter 3 by speaking of the validity of his ministry to the Corinthians. This very salvation commends him to them that serves as his resume. Then in verse 6, he differentiates between the Old and New Covenants. The Old is of stone, that's the stone tablets brought down by Moses containing the Ten Commandments, and the New Covenant is by the Holy Spirit written in our hearts per the uh, the verses that we saw in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. He makes a further differentiation between the covenants in verse 6 as he refers to the old as the letter, the old covenant as the letter that killeth. Ooh, what a description. And he refers to the new covenant as the spirit that giveth life. Now here's the doctrinal position that so many of today's Christians have problems understanding. The old covenant, the law of Moses, now brace yourselves, has been done away. I mean, look at verses 7 and 11. Verse 7 is a direct reference to Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35, and that's when Moses brought down the Ten Commandments from the mountain. In both verses 7 and 11, Paul says that the glory of that old covenant was done away. Now, here's the way Christ put it in Matthew 5, 17. He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. When Christ died on the cross, he ended the need for further sacrifices under the old covenant. He was, Jesus was, the once-for-all-time sacrifice. He literally, when he died on the cross, fulfilled the law. Paul said this to the Colossians also in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, when he put it like this. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And then Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make it himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Jeremiah prophesied concerning the covenant of grace in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, which I read a few moments ago. And Paul, then again, I believe he wrote Hebrews, he emphasizes that this is the very covenant that we're under when he quotes all those verses again in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. So what's it all mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that we're made righteous by trusting Jesus Christ as our Savior. As believers, we receive our direction from God by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, a phrase used by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. We don't get our direction at all by the law of Moses. Our law comes from within, 
the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and not from without the law of Moses. Too many Christians still believe they're kept righteous after salvation by keeping the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, is a gross misunderstanding even of their original purpose. Interestingly enough, virtually none of these people have ever kept the Fourth Commandment, Sabbath day observance. I mean, they've never done it in their entire lives. The Sabbath is Saturday, always has been and always will be. No work, period. No work was to be done on the Sabbath. Look at Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 to 36, and there, here's what you realize. That even gathering firewood on the Sabbath was a violation of the fourth commandment that required death by stoning. So, are these commandment keepers looking for some sort of credit for reasonably keeping the remaining nine commandments? You simply must agree that our righteousness at salvation or after salvation has nothing to do with the keeping of the Ten Commandments. Paul says in verses 7 and 11 of this chapter that these commandments are, his words, done away. In other words, they have no sufficiency whatsoever in making anyone righteous before God before or after salvation. Now, Paul uses the veil placed upon the face of Moses that's seen in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35, to work his point in verses 12 through 18. This figurative veil prevents people who are still trusting the law of Moses from experiencing God's true glory. Those of us who've trusted Christ as Savior have the veil removed, and fully we experience the glory of God. No law, just grace. Now, if you still need some convincing regarding the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments, then look at my summary on Leviticus chapter 19. And also, there's an article that's actually on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today in the right-hand side there, which you'll also find under the topic section of the main page. Uh, and it's called The Sabbath Day. Read that, and you'll see that nine out of ten commandments is the best that most anybody you know really does. God's Word stands on its own. That brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Well, first of all, Paul's clear in verses 1 and 2 that this motivation for his ministry of proclaiming the truth of God's word is pure. What he does, he does out of obedience to God and a desire to positively influence people for Christ. Paul's clear that God's word doesn't need a sell job. It stands on its own. 
Folks who are impacted by God's Word have not done so because we're slick and polished with our presentation. The Word of God stands on its own. Hebrews 4.12 says it like this, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Great things happen when you just give out the Word of God. So what about the people who just don't seem to get it? I mean, God's Word. Why don't they get it? Well, verses 3 and 4 say they've been blinded by Satan. Let's not forget the extreme warfare we face. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. When the world misrepresents and bashes God's word, it's because they're influenced by unseen powers, powers that control the mind of the natural man. When we read the word of God, we find it meaningful. Why is that? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit in believers spiritually discerns the word of God for us. I mean, literally puts the Word of God into the context of godly Christian living for our benefit. That's why in verse 5, Paul emphasizes this. Just preach Christ Jesus the Lord, and let the Word of God do its work. Now, here's the picture presented in verses 6 and 7. Just as physical light shined at creation, so spiritual light shines in the hearts of those who become new creations in Christ. When Paul uses the term earthen vessels in verse 7, he's referring to our frail human bodies that are used by God to manifest himself. That manifestation of God through us is all the glory of God some people will ever see. It's an awesome privilege and also an awesome responsibility. That brings us to verse 8 of chapter 4. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal." In these verses, Paul continues his point that our strengths and abilities have nothing whatsoever to do with the success of the gospel. The power is God's, 
in verses 8 through 12, Paul lists his great hardships, but God's word prevails. Now, on the verses, uh, verses 8 and 9, I've got a little bit of a technical discussion showing you some Greek words. Uh, but I'm just going to summarize those for you. And if you're more interested in the detail, look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. When Paul says we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed, here's what he's saying. We're troubled, but we have an escape route. When he says we are perplexed, but not in despair, he's saying we are mentally at a loss, but it's not hopeless. Then he says persecuted, but not forsaken. Here's what he's saying there. We're persecuted, but we haven't been abandoned. And finally, he says cast down, but not destroyed. So here's what he's saying. We've been cast down by Satan, but hey, we're still not destroyed. You'll notice in verses 11 and 12 that Paul was completely consumed with serving Jesus Christ. His statement of these two verses expresses essentially the same thought as his words in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's own agenda and desires were crucified with Christ. His life now reflects Jesus Christ and not his own. In verses 13 through 15, Paul emphasizes that God, who is able to resurrect the dead, has the ability to extend grace to others through us, regardless of whether or not we have individual sales abilities or polished social skills. He quotes from Psalm 116.10 when he says, we having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. His point there is that he's speaking by the same spirit as the psalmist in that passage. And finally, in verses 16 through 18, Paul again alludes to the feebleness of man. The affliction we endure here is just nowhere near being comparable to the glories of our eternal abode with Christ. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 8, verse 18, where Paul says it like this, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, it's just all worth it. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.